Welcome to the Grey Eye and Disability Arts online podcast, Disability And. Bringing together thoughtful discussion and debate. This month, Colin Hambrook, editor of Disability Arts Online, chats with writer and performance poet Alan Sutherland about the launch of Electric Bodies, a collection of poems based on the lives of eight disabled artists. This podcast contains some strong language. Hi. We've been working on the Electric Bodies project over a few years now. It's part of a larger research programme led by Bath Spa University called D4D. We've published Alan Sutherland's poetry collection, currently available in print and due to be available in audio soon. Electric Bodies tells the life stories of disabled artists Matt Fraser, Tony Heaton, Catherine Araniello, Robin Sergina, Vicky Rayford-Sinnett, Julie McNamara, Jess Tom and myself. So, Alan, it's great to have you. Good to be here. Can you tell us a bit about transcription poetry, where it came from, how you got the idea for it? It, it started off uh, just as oral history. For, for quite a long time, I've, I've felt that we as, 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 as disabled people, as, as, as a disability arts movement, we, we needed to to ensure that what we're doing wasn't forgotten. We need to look at ways of, of preserving our, our work. And as part of that, I was thinking about, about doing some oral history work. Um, and then I, I got the news of Paddy Macefield, who was a, a, a leading figure, a leading sort of bit behind the scenes figure. So somebody who, who people who, who knew about disability arts would know it was very important, but 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 wasn't a, a kind of known name like like a number of artists are. He was the the, the person who'd worked with the arts council and others to to make sure that that work happened and was valued. And then Paddy was told that he got three months to live. Um, and I thought it was really important to try and record Paddy's story. So I, I, w- I went down there and, and, and interviewed Paddy. It's, Paddy had some severe ME, which restricted how we could work together. So I went down and stayed with, 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 with him and his wife. And then when Paddy felt up to it, we worked together. And, and then other times Paddy would go to bed and I'd do other things. Um, so we got that interview done. And then a little while later, I read an article in the Oral History Journal, which talked about using poetry as a way of transcribing oral history interviews so as to, to, to get a more accurate indication of how people had been speaking. And that just made me, made me think, I wonder if you could use the techniques of poetry with with an oral history interview to produce poetry. 
And fortunately, I'd, I'd, I'd got this fairly recently completed transcription with, of the interview with Paddy. And so I thought, well, well, let's give it a go with that. Sold you the idea, as I, as I remember. Absolutely. Well, I, I, want, I, I want to give you credit for that, Colin, because this, this whole transcription poetry journey, you, you've, you've been there as, as a supportive editor from the very beginning, and I really appreciate that. So we, we, we took that, that transcription and I tried editing it into poems and found that actually it worked very well to, 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 to do that. My background is not really poetry. My background is in script writing. So in creating one of these cycles of poetry, it's kind of like a script telling the story of somebody's life. So each poem in the, in the cycle is, is, is kind of like a, a, a scene in, in, in a film or a play. One thing that that I remember talking to you about at, at, at the time that, that was very interesting, even, even right at the beginning, was how much the voice of the person being interviewed comes through that process. Very strongly. And I found that even, even when I do, do public readings, still the individual voice of the person who's been interviewed comes strongly through that process, which is great. That's exactly what I would want. And in terms of the value of recording life histories in, in this way as transcription poetry cycles, what, what are the strengths of that, do you, do you think? I think the first thing to emphasise about the process is it produces transcriptions. And, and, and that's, a, that's a key part of of what I'm doing each, each time I, I do one, one of these cycles. I'm creating a transcription which will go into a library and be there for, for researchers to use to, you know, as, as, as a public document, telling one part of, of the history of, of our movement. I, I did a, an oral history training day some, some years back. And one of the things that I learned there was it's really important to do a transcription because researchers haven't got time to listen to loads and loads of tapes, but they can, but you can scan a transcription quite quickly to find out if there's anything relative to the work that you're doing. So you've got to have the transcription for, 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 the, for the work to be, to be useful to researchers and to history. But then <clears throat> turning it into poetry tells the story in a, in a, in a different way. Using poetry as, as, as a way of doing that gives it all the, all the strengths of, of sort of emotion and humour and, and, a, and, a, and a sort of forcefulness. And, you know, one's able to edit it. An academic paper I, I, I wrote in about 2010, I, I, I warned that you know that the, the, what I do with with this is is a is a good way of producing literature, but it's something that academics I feel should 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 be wary of, because in using the the the, the techniques of poetry and and of editing into a story 
um, you're doing something very powerful, which isn't necessarily the the same thing that academics want want to do. You're telling the story in a very particular way, in what you choose to leave in and 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 leave out, and that's you know it's it's like writing a biography rather than somebody just telling their own story. I guess for for research purposes, a poetry cycle is also um, to to find the details that you are looking for. That element of it being honed that that little bit further aids re research i think so i think it'll it certainly sells the material and in doing a whole lot of these together as we've done on d4d on electric bodies um it's very interesting to see the the, the patterns that across all all these different people with with quite different backgrounds um and also in in telling all 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 those stories narrated by people who 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 themselves are important artists or are, are important tellers of stories um i was thinking today about how there's stuff that comes up that you wouldn't normally get told in in other forms there's a poem of Matt Fraser's where he talks about how he's having a kind of midlife crisis and how, how, how his partner has, has said he, he ought to go for, for, for counselling. But he says, but the trouble is, Alan, I don't trust a non-disabled person to do that. And I, I get that. But I think the idea that disabled people don't trust non-disabled people is not one that's been put out there very much. It's not considered important, is it? The trust of a disabled person, generally. It doesn't occur to them that we wouldn't be grateful, that we wouldn't trust them for, for, for their help. But I think the stories that people have to tell and the, and, and the combination of all these different stories give quite a clear message about why that should be. Are there, are there other lessons that you that you learnt through through this process of doing such you know a cohort of uh, eight subjects in in one overall project? Well, it's it's always interesting hearing the the individual details of particular people's lives. And and the, and the stuff that's happened to them, and because they're such a varied group of people, it's quite a different set of experiences that 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 they that they've had. For example, Catherine Aranello talks about being sent away to to a special boarding school when she when she was very little, and 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 then not being given a, a mechanized wheelchair until she was eight. So she basically didn't have any mobility. Which is quite a shocking thing, and and against that you 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 have other people who who weren't born disabled but but became disabled. So you have Tony Heaton, for example, who's who's been a really important voice in the disability arts movement, uh, becoming disabled when he had a motorbike accident at the age of about sixteen. But seeing a, across the the set of poems. 
seeing people coming from all, all these different backgrounds, all these different experiences of disability, but really en ending up with, with similar kind of approaches. One, one reason that I cite for doing this is we have in the past defined disability arts, or I've defined it, as, as being art made by disabled people about the experience of disability. And what these poems do is, is, is they tell us what that experience has been in, in different ways for, for quite different people. And, and that's obviously really informative. And then there's stuff like, I never realized that punk was so important in to, to disability arts. That's a kind of generational thing, I think. After my time, punk, you see. <laughs> I wouldn't say it was a surprise to me, but I, I think um, because punk was about embracing otherness. Yeah. Uh, it it was it was a natural fit, you know. You didn't belong in the disco. <laughs> you didn't belong in the the the, the sort of fashionable places. Um, but you you could you you could always find a place with the with the other outcasts in within the punk movement. Uh, another thing, you know, about the whole process that's been so interesting is just how how many of us coming from different very different experiences are going through kind of go through similar processes of grappling with the idea of being a disabled person and claiming that identity as 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 a positive as a constructive thing and and having a, an epiphany that's one thing that I really hadn't realized before before doing that. And I think I think the word epiphany, which is the word that you gave to it, is, is a is a good one. I it really surprised me to to find out how defining yourself as a disabled person is completely different from from being disabled or or recognized. So with with Tony Heaton, for example, when he had he had his motorbike accident, it's like he, he recognised that he was now a wheelchair user, but he didn't take on the identity of I'm a disabled person at, at that point. Um, it, was, it was only subsequently that he started doing that. And, and there are some very interesting stories about those moments of epiphany. Can you, can you cite one or two of them, perhaps? Well, Matt Fraser talks about talks about when when he was a crusty and 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 playing in a band and whatever seeing two girls looking at him at a railway station and and realizing that what what they were seeing was was him as crusty not him as disabled person and thinking that isn't the identity that I want so he went back and told his band, I'm going not to be a disabled person now. And they said, but bloody time too. We've, <laughs> we've been wondering when you'd get there. <laughs> there was a, uh, a similar story in, in uh, Catherine Araniello's narrative as well, wasn't there? Although she was much, much younger. 
um, but she had a series of dreams about being carted off in a van with disabled people and yeah, well, well, she 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 describes very very graphically a dream that she had when she was about four years old before being taken off to to, to special school, uh, where she saw disabled people as as like a, a bunch of freaks that she was going to be imprisoned with. For for for, for some people, in disability. Impairment and the label of disabled person has been something that that they've lived with from a very early age. But disability arts, I think, has been a way that people have found found to actually go to that as as something that they see as as being something positive in their lives. I think it was um, it was real serendipity that you managed to to catch. Catherine Aranello before before she sadly passed away. So yeah, she's she's such a such an important artist. I think of the last thirty years, and it seems a tremendous injustice that she never had. Apart from within disability arts circles, she never had a wider acclaim that she deserved. I think she had some recognition with within the the, the, the live art movement which is where she chose to position herself. It's a great strength of, of Catherine's work that the Live Art Development Agency recognised her, her value and, and importance and, and, and went to the trouble, actually, of documenting quite a lot of her work in, in video and, and text. That record, I think, is really, really important. And, um, and, and I think this research Will, will kind of help to 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 lead help lead researchers to to her work in a in a meaningful way. I hope so. I, I hope so. It's worth remembering that one of the reasons that I thought it was important to do oral history work and 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 to set up an archive and record what what we were doing is that we're not as long lived as, as other groups of people. It's, it's easy to think of important figures in our movement who, who, who are no longer there. Adam Reynolds, for example, would be someone that I'm sure would have been really interesting to do a set of poems with. When you were putting together the cohort for Electric Bodies, I, I wondered how, how you went about choosing who, who you were would interview? First thing was I, I wanted it to, to be all established artists, people who'd made some sort of significant contribution to disability arts. And I, on the whole, I wanted it to be, to be people whose work I knew, just, just because it was easier for me to, to work out what was there, what needed to be said. What, what needed to be explored. But then doing, doing a group, we tried to, to, to get a reasonable sort of spread of, of people. I'm sorry we didn't find anybody learning disabled to include. That's the one big, big gap that I'd point to. Maybe there are future opportunities to do, to do more. 
let's hope so yeah i think one of the things that that the electric bodies cycles do is to record a certain time in in, in history they there's a sort of kind of sociological research there i think in terms of that um the brutality of the 70s and 80s and 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 um how disabled people were treated and regarded then i think there are there are things that if if you told the average guardian reader that these things happened in the 1930s they'd say yes wasn't that was a terrible time wasn't it we're very enlightened in those days but tell them that it happened you know within our lifetime that's quite shocking there is a kind of link to see between quite different experiences that that the people have had but but they come from the same sort of mindset between things like Catherine not being able to move because she they wouldn't give her an electric wheelchair until she was 10 or something and 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 Robin Sergner talking about having all these pointless operations to make him to, to break his legs and stretch them and whatever so he'd walk a little bit more normally similar with matt fraser isn't it and with the um all of the devices that that, that the uh, that they were um you know trying to give him arm extensions and yeah, I can I can remember because I'm I'm just old enough to to remember the thalidomide thing when it first started breaking, and there were lots and lots of stories about all these prosthetics that were being that that were being developed, which practically nobody used, actually, and the reason the reasons for that are very straightforward. Um, there's a, there's a thing you can find online where where Matt does a strip tease wearing prosthetic arms, and one of the, one of the things he takes off is 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 the two prosthetic arms. And actually, you can you can see there that he's not able to undo the buttons on his shirt until he's got rid of the fucking prosthetics. Hmm. Yeah. They're not just unhelpful; they they they're, they're actually a hindrance. And but I'm I'm glad we got all that stuff from from Matt because the thalidomiders will be gone in a few decades. It'll be a thing that happened in the twentieth century. It'll be kind of forgotten about. And because there There was only quite a short period where it, where it was being given to to pregnant women, and so that they're like a group of people who are all in the same class at school. They've gone through the same things at at the same sort of time as 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 each other, and and now they're 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 moving into in, into old age and dying. And it and it won't be long till till the whole lot of them are gone. 
and I think they deserve to be something a bit better than a historical sidelight. Absolutely. Mm. What other uh, useful things for future generations do you think Electric Bodies reveals? Lots. Um, for example, I'm really pleased that we got Jess Tom's account of her life as somebody with Tourette's. Um, I mean, Jess has, in, in, in her own shows, has done a done a very good job of, 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 of describing all of that. But there were some very interesting aspects to, to, to what she was saying about her schooling and how teachers dealt with her and how she's, she's come to look back and see how she'd be, she'd be given things to do, which were actually sort of containing the fact that, that she'd go wandering around if they didn't give her something to, to, to go and do. And she obviously had quite, you know, quite, quite sympathetic teachers. Um, plus her account of, of doing Beckett's Not I, which I think was an incredible thing to do, to actually negotiate with the, with, with, with the Beckett estate and put a whole new meaning on a key piece of work by, by one of the leading writers of the 20th century. All the stuff I've done in the past has been a, from a disability arts perspective. It was quite interesting interviewing Robin Sergener, um, who's a gold medal winning Paralympian, to, bringing, a, bringing a sports angle to it, which is something I've, I've not looked at before. And he had a very interesting story to, to, to tell about how he got into swimming basically by being given hydrotherapy and, and sort of took it from there. Putting it all beside each other, it's, it, it's great to show that there are lots of different stories to tell. Plenty, plenty of parallels be, be, between them, but it's not like just Oh, this is what it's like to be a, disa a disabled person. They're all the same. It's a whole set of very different stories. I think Vicky Rayford Sinnott um, comes very much from a, a regional perspective, a story about Ireland and a story about the Northeast. Yeah, I, I, I think that's, that's excellent. And, and also bringing in some stuff from a farming background. There's a really interesting story. I don't know if, if if we put it in the book, but certainly in the in the longer cycle, there's a um, a poem based on how when her father had a stroke, she 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 went with him to to buy a new tractor or or something and saw how he was being treated in a way that he wouldn't have been treated six months earlier because he wasn't disabled then. That's a, a story I haven't heard before. And, and I, I think Vicky is a, is a really important person in her own right, so it's really good to, to hear her story and, and to, to, to get some, some recognition that, that disability arts did exist outside London. Uh, the, the North East, Newcastle were absolutely pivotal to the 
development of disability arts in the yeah in the in the early um 1990s um right and it seems a terrible waste a shame that 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 significance isn't isn't documented more yeah work of um the national disability arts forum and the northern disability arts forum aren't, aren't kind of um recorded and i i, I and i i think um that section with 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 vicky kind of does that to some extent yeah so it, it would be it would be good to see some sort of local project developing to, to do that on a local level in a more kind of general respect though the the the, the electric bodies book i think it we've talked about the value of it to to um to researchers to to to, to academics uh, and um from a kind of historical and sociological perspective but but i i think it has a wider appeal as a um as a set of of um biographies i've i've long had a concern for for the the potential disabled artists of of the future that have we left enough behind that they will know they're not the first doesn't doesn't necessarily mean that that they have to copy us but even if, if people just disagreeing with us and saying god i'm not going to turn out rubbish like colin hambrook that old stuff <laughs> <laughs> oh but something to to place themselves some something to to give them the idea that that then you know that it what what they're doing is it's not ridiculous to think of achieving things, being an artist. And and to have some realization of how other people have tackled that and what sort of messages they've left. So I think this this book is potentially part of that process. It's I th I think it it's um it explains quite a lot of the barriers. Yes. I, I, I suspect that for disabled people of the of future generations, the, the, the barriers will, will shift and change. Um, and there's a certain amount of unpredictability in, in, in how barriers will change. Yes. But, ways of addressing barriers and and of uh way, ways of of kind of um i don't want to say overcoming but way, ways of taking those barriers down will there there will always be similar approaches that 
um, that will be that will be important, you know, a, 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 just in terms of coming together collectively. Yeah, uh, and finding and talk about our experience. And I would hope we can teach people in the future the the importance of recognizing when there are barriers and overcoming them or disregarding them or just dealing with them. It's, uh, it's like one thing that our generation has, but was a lot of the barriers were very obvious. So it was kind of easy to see what needed to be done that the buses needed to be accessible, that people needed to be able to get into art schools and drama schools and whatever. I think these days people face, there are still barriers, but they're not quite so overt, not quite so easy to see. And young, young people saying, I'm not a disabled artist, I'm just an artist. Um, may have the cards more stacked against them than they're aware. It might be interesting to to take younger disabled artists through this process and find out where where the you know what differences are where 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 change has happened. I mean it was quite interesting with this cohort of eight that 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 um everyone came from the very different background in terms of impairment and uh in kind of geographically and and socially but but there were huge similarities i think some of the things you only kind of realize over time i i spent a lot of time trying to write for television and only gradually realizing how how powerful the gatekeepers were and how how negative their attitudes were and, and and how difficult it would be to to do the sort of thing that I wanted to I mean I had commissions from Channel 4 several times and each time I did a thing that I always really wanted to write about was how disabled people get fucked up by their parents by the parents and teachers and non-disabled people um, and commissioning editors really didn't want to hear about that. Whereas I, I always wanted to try and point, find ways of pointing the finger a bit. <laughs> I mean, it's quite interesting to to see through, throughout all all the eight things. You've got a bunch of people who who have fairly similar outlooks on the world, who, who don't feel they've got to tug their forelocks all the time, who, who, who have a, quite a clear sense of what's right and wrong about what happens to disabled people. And it's quite compelling as, as a read. Yeah. And it's good to see the pictures illustrated as well. The, see the poems il illustrated. I think your pictures in in the book really contribute a lot. I hope they're interesting. Anyway, uh, even if they don't get the humour that they they find them.
um, in, find them interesting. I hope so. And I, I hope the, the little selections of poems in, in, in the book will take some people to reading the, the full cycles. Well, thank, thanks very much, Alan. It's, it's been great to chat. It's great to have the book. And um, hopefully we can, we can um, guide people to the, um, the D4D website a bit more readily now as well, where, where they can see the full cycles. I hope so. Uh, and the, the pictures are on the website, aren't they? The animations are on the website, yeah. yeah animations using the poems, yeah. Great. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed it. Visit greyeye.org and disabilityarts.online for details of productions, events, interviews, opinions, reviews and learning opportunities.